Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Planet Protectors podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and I am super, super excited to introduce her. So let's get right into it. Today's special guest is someone who has made a huge impact in Ontario's land conservation field. She grew up in South Africa and was inspired by many African species to make a commitment to help protect all animals and the environment. Her work has led her to accomplish amazing things, like creating a conservation organization called The Land Between. Because of her work, she has received the National Roland Mitchler Award for Wildlife Research and Conservation. She strives to create a world where wildlife is protected, indigenous voices are heard, and everyone experiences nature. Please welcome environmentalist and founder of The Land Between, it's Leora Berman. Thank you for coming on today and taking the time to uh, do this interview. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is such a delight to be here. The first question is, what and where is the land between? So the land between is a landscape that sits between the, um, the Canadian Shield and the St. Lawrence Lowlands. Um, and it extends all the way from the Georgian Bay Coast to the Frontenac Arc or the Ottawa Valley, whichever it's easier to recognize. Its name comes from a map from the York University archives that w- was from the 1700s. And this landscape was depicted as a portage route that was called the Land Between. And that's where the name comes from. And the Land Between is um, an extremely vital and important landscape for all of wildlife in Southern Ontario and for humans if we're going to navigate climate change. The land between is also a landscape that is recognized in many uh, recent climate change and biodiversity models across Canada as as a hotspot for biodiversity and as a last refuge of biodiversity in all of Southern Ontario. And because it's so critical for wildlife and human health, it has been recognized. And because we are also so dynamic in terms of our partnerships and there's cultural vitality here as well, the land, the land between landscape and charity was recognized as one of uh, 15 community nominated priority places in Canada. So one of 15 places across Canada that received this designation as um, a community nominated priority place. So that's pretty special too. And the reason it's so special is the land between is what ecologists call an ecotone. And an ecotone is not a homogeneous uniform region like the Canadian Shield, which has very similar um, uh, features across the whole landscape. An ecotone is an edge or a transition zone, and it is usually a mosaic or a patchwork. And it has features from both Northern Ontario and Southern Ontario. So it has features from the Canadian Shield and St. Lawrence Lowlands that meet in the middle. So it's a transition between these two eco regions. It's a dancing landscape of high to low, wet to dry, alvar to forest, river to wetland, lake to meadow, rock barren to forest. It's just um, got the highest habitat diversity in Ontario, if not Eastern Canada. And um, that diversity of natural habitats means that we've got more resilience. We've got more ecosystem services, more pollinators. So um, 
it's really vi uh, vibrant and alive. It's the last wilderness landscape in Southern Ontario. Because it's a meeting place of North and South, it's also an intact landscape relative to everywhere else. That's why it's a last uh, wilderness refuge. And so um, we have more resilience because when Southern Ontario is out of pollinators, we have um, a stronghold or remaining pollinators. And when Northern Ontario has a loss of breeding birds, um, because of climate change, forestry, all kinds of things, then we've got a reserve of breeding birds. Um, so we're kind of the bank for the rest of Southern Ontario. So that's pretty important to keep, you know, the money in the bank, <laughs> to keep the wildlife um, intact here. And then the other thing about the land between, which is just mind blowing, is that it is the exact landscape is marked by the petroglyphs and pictographs. And these are the largest collection of glyphs in North America. And they, they mark the landscape exactly from east to west. And the species um, depicted in these glyphs are also species where this is their last stronghold. So um, culturally, I mean, that's I consider it a holy landscape. And... Um, and culturally, it's also a, a very vibrant landscape where the earth sort of said, uh, pushed back against all the colonization. And because we derive our identity really from nature and the land around us, um, relative to some parts of uh, Southern Ontario, the indigenous cultures are relatively intact, I would say, um, because the land is still intact. Yeah, that's amazing. No wonder you've dedicated a lot of your life to protecting this amazing place. That's really for a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast in their backyards. So that's pretty special. Thank you for doing everything that you do. Thanks. Absolutely. And that was a great introduction to uh, what the land between is. So kind of switching gears to more of the organization side of this, what is the Land Between organization that you have started? Because I was shaped by my early days in South Africa, and uh, when we came to Canada, my father took us to all the reserves and all the parks to learn about the people and the wildlife of this land. And when I was growing up, both the, the Indigenous people and the wildlife were conspicuously missing. <laughs> um, and so when I got the chance to create my own organization, um, the first thing I did was approach First Nation communities and Indigenous people to ask them if they would honor the effort by participating and walking hand in hand with me on this journey. And so as far as I know, um, The Land Between is the first organization in Canada to attempt to honor the original treaties of Canada by ensuring that the governance of the organization is at least 50% Indigenous. And we actually have a delegate that is appointed on behalf of Curve Lake First Nation to represent uh, the First Nation. And we also operate in a hybrid traditional talking circle, which is um, a modern version of some of the original governance uh, models of Indigenous peoples. And we are uh, deeply democratic. Um, decisions are made by consensus, and there's no hierarchy 
in the land between charity. So that's really unique because it allows us to hear each other and, um, and um, consensus is an unusual, unfortunately, it's an unusual way of doing business nowadays. But um, when, you, when you have to listen to each other around a table, it's amazing how fast you can reach a consensus. So that's the organization in terms of the governance structure. Uh, we are a nationally registered charity, and we hope to be a model of cooperation for others. We use a very grassroots approach to doing business and offering our services, where we hope to empower everyday people to be community scientists and to take part in conservation. We offer training and opportunities for for just everyday people. And that's really important for us. And we also work with, with governments, with NGOs and other um, even service clubs and other groups at all levels and across different sectors. So we try to really not preach to the converted and try to get people to connect to nature and learn from nature and then care for nature. That's amazing. And that is just what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well, just try to get people to learn more and just care about nature just a little bit more every time they listen to this podcast. Yeah, I think that's very inspiring that you're doing that. And I just, it's wonderful to see. The next question is something that you've already answered a little bit, but why is the land between so unique and special? The land between is the last place in Southern Ontario you can see the Milky Way. The land then between is the first place in Ontario you can hear the common loon. The land between is the last place in Southern Ontario you can see the moose. The land between is the only place in Ontario that's relatively intact for wilderness. So wildlife can move freely between, um, I guess, quote unquote properties. That's really important for larger wildlife like moose and bear and ungulates. The next question is, what are the current threats to the land between? The land between is essentially um, three Jenga boards. I call an ecosystem a Jenga board. Like um, the food web is like a Jenga board. And you've got uh, the producers at the very bottom, the insects, and then, you know, amphibians and, and mesopredators, the ones that eat the others, and then the apex predators. And everything is interrelated. So when you um, take a piece of property and you remove the base of the food web by taking all the native plants away, you're basically pulling those pieces out of a Jenga board and the ecosystem, even if it's locally around your house, can collapse. And the more people that do that, the worse it is. So yeah. you're fragmenting the landscape and you're, you're removing um, the base, the food for everyone else. Um, that is... A big threat. The land between um, has, so in southern Ontario we've lost pollinators, uh, we've lost producers, uh, insect populations have dumped by more than 70 percent. Estimates say bird populations have declined by almost 70 percent across many species um, and that's, or across many guilds, and that's really concerning. Um, so the land between luckily has a bit more resilience because it has three ecosystems colliding. So the biggest threats to this landscape are definitely residential development in um, a style that's now 
uh, that doesn't speak to the next generations and the reality of the economy and future generations. Um, and yet the older generations are still consuming and building um, as if we are kings. And um, it's just um, making things collapse. So uh, again, we've seen huge losses of Lepidoptera, of moths. And um, moths are essential food sources, not just for bats, but for many sweets, many guilds of birds, um, grassland birds and aerial insectivores. And they're a supplementary food for bear and other mammals. And so this staple food source is, is I wouldn't say absent, but really concerning the, the low, the the losses are are so significant. It's it's frightening, um, and that is because of land um, terraforming, um, and that is when people take the bottom of the food web away. They they take all the native plants away. They have a very large ecological footprint that's not necessarily necessary, and it's not connected through their backyards. They don't connect. Uh, they don't have areas that connect to the forest or they clean up the forest floor. The, these kinds of activities are really concerning. Insecticides, people seem to be spraying, not understanding that there's a cascading effect across the whole food chain from fish to amphibians to birds and bats. And if we don't have the birds and the pollinators to spread seeds and make things grow, we're, we're in big trouble. So I would have to say residential development is the largest threat to this last vital wilderness. There are really good models um, in uh, Scandinavia and Greenland have amazingly sustainable models of residential development that don't impact even a more fragile landscape than ours. So I wouldn't say that it is the threat around the world, it, it's the threat of the first world, not the third world. Oh, and one threat I can't forget, sorry to say, is um, also climate change. But it is really the human impact that is making things um, worse. Um, we could, this landscape inherently has some resilience and we can adapt, but it's our patterns of consumption that are making things worse. So not everyone has to have a five acre property or a one acre property that is devoid of nature. <laughs> um, and um, the decisions by the um, those in power don't necessarily reflect um, the majority. Um, so that is a huge threat. So I would have to say the lack of true democracy is a threat to this landscape. Wow. Yeah. Um, so what are we doing? So sorry to go back. Um, no worries. And the decisions not only don't reflect the majority, they don't reflect future generations. They're really um, um, short-term um, financial gain without looking at the long-term financial implications. So that's a threat to this landscape. So we've heard about all of the different threats that the land between is facing. What projects are you doing to help combat these different threats? Okay. So now what are we doing to, to help? We are 
developing tools specifically for decision makers like municipalities, um, which map uh, and model the um, different ecosystem services that the landscape provides. So for instance, we are creating mapping of wetlands and modeling of them to show municipalities and decision makers how various wetlands perform in terms of flood control, uh, which wetlands are really essential or more essential than others in phosphorus uptake, and then which wetlands are biodiversity hotspots, but all wetlands are. Um, so that when they go to make decisions about residential development, they actually can now have the tools to show um, to show the implications of the decisions they're making instead of just working with ar archaic mapping or limited mapping because not all municipalities have up-to-date mapping and some municipalities don't even have the capacity to do their own. So in to complement projects like that, we also have curriculums that we're developing that talk about Indigenous reconciliation and what that may look like and, and what Indigenous uh, knowledge has in store for us and the benefits of paying attention to that. The curriculums also include um, how to look at a hydrograph, <laughs> so how to look at flood flooding and why different features, natural features might want to you know, be preserved, what, why they might want to preserve them. But we're also giving them curriculums where we're showcasing leadership. So there's some really wonderful models across Ontario and Canada and the world actually of planning permits. So how you can balance development and conservation. And they're not necessarily the bylaws, they're actually the processes. So there's something called the planning permit where you can it's a one-stop shop to get uh, a development approved, but in that one-stop shop, you can sit together with a developer and talk about the whys and talk about adjusting different things. And so it's more efficient and it's more effective in making sure that people don't tear apart the landscape and, uh, and destroy the food web and keep things connected and functioning. So that's one kind of thing we're doing. Then with landowners, we um, have tons and tons of community science programs. So we can train you to become a birder, a herper, a herpetologist, a junior herpetologist or junior ornithologist so that you can pay attention and monitor and, and obtain, gather data and information about what's happening in your neighborhood, in your backyard, in your community. When you get to participate at that scale, then it's amazing how much you learn on your own when you're out in nature. And then it makes it easier for anyone like you and me to find solutions or any everyday person to find their own solutions. Because when you observe that a turtle cannot be uh, redirected, for instance, and you observe how they move, then you know how to design um, a development or a or an underpass, an eco-passage for turtles. But it's only by observing an experience rather than just what we think. It's practice, practice is more important than opinion. <laughs> and so we design lots of projects that like that for, for everyday people. That's amazing. So just thank you so much uh, <laughs> to yourself and your whole team for all the amazing work that you have been doing over the past few years. 
So now we're going to talk more about Indigenous peoples because you said that you have worked alongside many Indigenous groups. So if we just touch on that, I think that would be very interesting to the listeners as well. Indigenous perspectives and worldviews, as far as what I have learned, are so connected to the land and the understanding and the observation that everything is alive and sentient and has wisdom inherently within them. Uh, So Indigenous people will never refer to a turtle or a a bird as an it. It's a them. And um, I think every child I've ever met understands this as well. And somewhere along the line, we forget that the world is living and communicating with us. The bravery and um, that Indigenous people have to stand in that truth and fight for that truth is incredibly inspiring. And um, and they are leaders that we need to uh, follow by example, like by their example. And that's what I can say about Indigenous people. Thank you. So I think you just answered my question of how Indigenous views of the land different than non-Indigenous Canadians. And that was a great answer right there. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So the final question is, how do these different Indigenous views help inform the management of the land between? Or how does your collaboration with Indigenous groups help move your mission forward? Oh, wow. Well, besides being almost the the in inspiration for a lot of how we do what, what we do and um, a lot of what we do as well, we also strive to walk hand in hand and, and repair um, the, some of the damage that colonization has done because it's, it's the only way to be part of the solution. And so in so many ways, it's not just the inspiration, but it is the rationale be, besides saving the living land and all the members of the living landscape. That, that relationship is the fuel in the tank in a sense, um, or at least the oil that greases the system. <laughs> In terms of the value of those perspectives, um, that's immeasurable, but also there is um, a heritage of uh, caring for and also paying attention to the landscape. So um, in addition with indigenous knowledge, um, so indigenous ecological knowledge, we work with harvesters, um, hunters, naturalists, people who spend a lot of time outside, right? And they don't have to be educated um, because their observations are um, sort of the ground for a lot of our work. You only know what's going on again when you observe it and you participate and you observe it firsthand. So those observations, both indigenous knowledge and and the fact that it's an oral uh, tradition and practice so that they know what their forefathers and grandfathers and grandmothers have seen and they can they can communicate the changes because nowadays for generations like you and beyond it's a moving benchmark 
when I was a child, and I'm only in my 50s, early 50s, I could drink out of a lake, any lake. When I was a child, I would take a drive even in Dundas, Ontario, which was somewhat urbanized, from Hamilton to Dundas, a 20-minute drive, and the grill of my car or my parents' car would be full of bugs. And you don't see that anymore. So it's this moving benchmark of what is normal. And so to have that um, traditional knowledge and that um, those observations passed down so we remember um, what it what was here and we have a benchmark or we have a uh, touchstone or we have a goal to get back to, you know. So they're leaving us breadcrumbs, basically. And that's important. Well, that is, that's just amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it is. So we work really hard and time is of the essence because a lot of the Indigenous elders are um, at that stage where they're passing on and Indigenous languages are also becoming extinct and Indigenous people's cultures is also at risk. Well, thank you so much for answering all these questions for me. My pleasure, Blake.